0: Desperate times call for desperate measures, or so the adage goes. And some people react differently to intense pressure, right? Some people seem to come alive. It's the hardest they've ever had it at work. Everything, the wheels are falling off this thing. And they're right there in the action, right? They, they're just Johnny on the spot. They got an answer for the problem. They're ready to make those hard decisions, and then there are other people. They're a little bit of pressure, and they're in the corner reverting to a childlike state. They're wishing they had their blankie and they can begin to suck their thumb, right? We all react differently to desperate times, to desperation. He sometimes brings out the best of us, sometimes the worst. I had a commander when I was in the Army, and uh, I remember we had, we were trying to load all of the equipment that we had onto these ships to Mexico. America. We had been in country for a year and 30 days. We're all tired. We don't want to be there. It's sandy and dusty, and half or more is already, already home with their family. Some of them are chiding us on emails, and nothing's going right in loading this sh- We've got a, all of our helicopters in there, all of our tanks, all of our trucks, everything that makes up our unit. And um, if it were not for this one commander who, when everything was falling apart, had the right answers, he could be there and he could make a good decision. And we would never have got that thing loaded in time to get it, to get it out to sea. Well, in our text today, we're continuing our series through 1 Samuel. And as we saw last week, David and Jonathan. David is more and more becoming a fugitive from Saul. He, is, he now knows for certain that Saul means him harm, right? Him and Jonathan devised this method to determine whether Saul meant them harm or not. And so they know Saul means business, and he's got the weight of the army behind him. So it's not somebody that David wants to trifle with. This is a desperate situation for David. What's he going to do next? Where's he going to turn? How's he going to respond being a fugitive on the lamb, running from Saul? Well, David doesn't respond too well under pressure in this situation. Now, David isn't always like this. He actually learns from his mistakes. But in this story, David makes some errors because he's desperate. He doesn't know where to turn. He doesn't know what to do next. He's just relying on his own resources. He's trying to figure this thing out on his own. But fortunately, this is not David's story. This is God's story. God is writing it, and God is bringing David through the wilderness so that David will learn the lessons that will form him and shape him to be the kind of king, to be the kind of man who is after God's own heart. You see, God is the kind of God who loves cliffhangers. He loves those desperate situations that seem like there's no way out of them. He loves to intervene in those moments when we have nowhere else to turn. And so, David needs to learn that God will provide even when times are desperate. Even when it seems hopeless. So let's turn together to... 1 Samuel chapter 21 which is also printed for you in your bulletin and we're going to read through to verse 5 of chapter 22 Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him why are you alone and no one with you and David said to Ahimelech the priest "'The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, "'Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you "'and with which I have charged you. "'I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. "'Now then, what do you have on hand? "'Give me five loaves of bread or or whatever is here?' "'And the priest answered, David, "'I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, "'if the young men have kept themselves from women.' And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Amalek, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, "'The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Allah, behold, it is here, wrapped in the cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here.' And David said, "'There is none like that. Give it to me.' And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, "'Is not this David, the king of the land?' Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his hair and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adjulam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask that as we come this morning into your presence to open up this portion of your word, we ask for wisdom that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonders therein. For we pray this in Jesus' name and amen. You see, David is desperate. And the the narrator is giving us a few vignettes, a, a few episodes of surfacing themes that will become important later on for David's life. First, David goes to Ahimelech at Nob. Now, Ahimelech is a priest within the line of Eli. Now, if you'll remember, way, way, way back to last spring, we talked about the household of Eli. Eli was not a faithful priest, or at least his sons were not faithful, and he was not faithful to discipline his sons. And they were um, engaged in their priesthood for gain, right? They were robbing God of sacrifices, and God promised to cut off the line of Eli forever. He lost his two sons in battle when the ark was taken to the Philistines, At that time, probably the tabernacle was moved from Shiloh to Nob, another city, a priestly city. It's a Levitical city, not in Benjamin, but in Judah. So David is near his home. He's in Judah. Remember, David is from Bethlehem. So he, not knowing what to do now, Jonathan and he had discovered Saul has got it out for him. He's got to go somewhere. But where? Where does he turn? Where is he going to find refuge, a safe place? David's all alone. He has no men. He has no army. He's used to leading out an army. He has no army. He has no weapons. He has no food. He has nowhere to turn to. But he goes to the tabernacle, he goes to the place where God is worshiped. Only, remember, David is not really thinking clearly, he's desperate. And so when he comes there, he tells Ahimelech, he tells Ahimelech a lie. He deceives Ahimelech. Now, why does he do that? We're not really sure. Perhaps it's to provide a level of plausible deniability so that Ahimelech can say, Well, I had no idea what David was doing here. He came and he said he was on a mission by you, so I greeted him. And this is exactly what he does say in chapter 23. 3. But why does David not inquire of the Lord and ask him, what is the will of God for me? It's not clear. David is not thinking clearly. He's desperate. He wants bread. He wants bread because he has no food. And so he asks the Himalek to give him five loaves of bread. He tells him that the king has sent him on a mission. He's sent him hastily, and he's not given had any time to get any provisions ready and so he's asking for him to just supply him for some bread now one of the reasons we know that David is not thinking through this clearly is that five loaves of bread is not enough for an army it's a it's a little bit more than one person needs but it's not enough to feed a troop but David said he has an appointed time to meet some men that's also not true he doesn't have any intention of meeting somebody, but he misleads Ahimelech to think that. Now, Ahimelech says, the take their sustenance from the sacrifices. They get this, they get food from the sacrifices, and they take their bread from the sacrifices. Now, this is different than in the ancient Near East and even in some pagan cultures, it's common to feed the idols, right? You might put out wine and bread in front of an idol to feed it. This is not what's happening with the bread of presence. You see, what's happening is, uh, it is a testimony to God feeding us, to God sustaining us. You see, each loaf of the bread of presence, which is is called that because it's set before the face of God. It's before his face. It's in his presence. That bread, each loaf, is made up of the exact same measurement of the manna, That the children of Israel were to collect when they were in the wilderness. And what what was the manna for? The manna was God's provision to Israel in the midst of a desert, in the midst of a barren desert. God feeds them. God provides them. You see, God doesn't have need of our bread. He doesn't need to be fed. We do. And we need to be reminded that God is the one that cares for us. So there are 12 loaves that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And each Sabbath, a fresh 12 loaves is put before the presence of the Lord. And the old 12 loaves, the priests are to eat. It is for them. It is so that they remember that God is the one that sustains them. And so he says, well, all I have is this holy bread, this show bread, this bread of the presence. And no one is supposed to eat of that except for the priest because it is holy. It's consecrated. But he says, if you have kept yourself from women, then you may partake of it. Now, there's nothing in the Levitical law that says... Uh, you, can't, you, uh, you need to keep yourself from your wife before you go to war. But it was common for the soldiers in preparation because they considered their calling to be holy. They were executing God's justice on his enemies. They would prepare themselves by abstaining from sexual relations with their wives. Now, You'll know from the Leviticus, the Levitical laws, that you were unclean when you slept with your wife. You were unclean for the day, and then you washed, and the next day you were clean, right? So, uh, it, it's what it's doing is teaching Israel to be clean before the Lord, to be ritually pure, to set themselves apart, to understand God is holy. He's not like we are. He's different. He's holy, and so. Ahimelech tells David that if his men have kept themselves pure, then they may take this bread. Now, remember, again, David's desperate. He's just kind of struggling for answers. How, if, if, let's say, it was true. We know Saul didn't send him on a mission. That's we know, is a lie. If it was the case, how would he know that his men were ritually clean? If they left in haste, how would he know that they had not been with their wives? He could not. So, again, we see that David is desperate. He's trying to find a way through this situation, and he's relying on his own resources. And so, the, the, the important thing for us to realize is that Ahimelech, he realizes he sees the true spirit of this law, not the letter of the law, right? It, it is true that the bread is only for the priests, but Jesus draws attention to this story. When the disciples are walking through the fields and they're plucking the heads of grain and the Pharisees and scribes are are saying, why are your disciples working on the Sabbath? All they're doing is plucking grain and eating it. And he points to the story and he says, don't you remember the story of David, how he took the showbread, which is not lawful for him to eat. What is Jesus drawing their attention to? And what is this portion of this scripture drawing our attention to? Well, the showbread, the bread of presence, is replaced on the Sabbath. And it's meant to show God's provision, His providence for the people of God. Well, what is the Sabbath? Why did God give us the Sabbath? Does God need to rest? No, God does not need to rest in His battles with the Pharisees and the Sadducees over the Sabbath. Jesus says, my Father has been working until now. And I am worth. And in Psalms, Thomas exclaims, "He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep." It's not God that needs rest. God gives us the Sabbath so that we can rest. And there are two reasons that God gives the Sabbath. The first is so that we recognize who we are. We are not God. We are finite. I don't know about you, but I get tired. I need rest. I need to recover my strength so that I can engage in my vocation faithfully. And to do that, I need to sleep at night and I need to take a Sabbath on the Lord's Day. I need to rest from my cares. I need to be recreated by God. I need to recognize that I am not God. Now, our culture is not good at this, right? Now, we may not all work 24-7, but our culture does. There is somebody working at a factory at all hours of the day throughout this country. And on the Lord's day, people are working right now. And Sometimes we think our pursuits are, they don't matter, but we sit and we turn on the football game on Sunday. That team is working. They're not taking rest on the Lord's day. We go to the restaurant and those who serve us are working. Are we aware? Are we thinking about others? We may be resting. But do we, are we concerned about others entering into that rest as well? You see, are, we are more shaped by our culture than we are by the principle of the Sabbath. And the second thing the Sabbath teaches us is that God is the one who sustains and provides for us. The Israelites saw this in a much more tangible way than we did. Every seven years, they were to rest their ground. They were to let it lay fallow. And God promised that in the sixth year, he would give them such a bounty that it would provide for them through the seventh year all the way through the eighth year until the eighth year's crop could be harvested. What are they to learn? That what they have What sustains them, what gives them life does not come from their strength or their striving or their abilities, but it comes from God Himself. He provides their needs. And they learn that through the Sabbath. But but we don't. I remember my, my daughter, we were in the store and she was looking at this doll. She had convinced me to go down the toilet. It's always a bad idea especially with your daughter. A son, no, you know, that's easy. But a daughter, it's like, well, I don't think mom wants me to. I usually blame it on mom. But she's looking at this doll, and then she says, "Uh, can I get this? And I was looking at the price, I was like, oh, sweetie, that's way too expensive. We can't. You have lots of dolls. Oh, but, Papa, you have a card in your wallet. I've seen it. And and you just put that card in the machine, and she's very serious. So just put the card in the machine, and then we can get it. I've seen mom do it. I'm sure you've seen mom do it. But see, we, we get sort of confused about where our sustenance comes from, right? We think, well, my food comes from Giant or Walmart, and, you know, my clothing comes from Walmart or Old Navy, and... And those things uh, are kind of far removed from God and his provision for us. But God is the one who supplies all of our needs. And part of the Christian life is for us to learn to trust him in the midst of those situations that he will provide. When we're desperate like David and we need bread and we need weapons and we, we don't know where to turn to next. We have to have that kind of faith that says, I rest and I rely upon God in the midst of this situation. I know that He will supply my needs. He's been faithful to me in the past. He will continue to be faithful because He never changes. God provides our basic needs. And the greatest thing that He provided is His Son, Jesus. He provided... In the greatest exchange, he took our sins and we receive his righteousness. So sinner becomes saint. And he who knew no sin becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's God's provision. Heavenly bread, right? He gives it holy bread. Jesus is greater Heavenly bread. He's the bread that comes down from the Father. And those who eat from Him never hunger again. God provides. And in these episodes, we are seeing David learn these lessons. By the end of this, when we come to chapter 22, he's learned. God is the one that provides. And God is the one I need to inquire of for what I do next. This first episode, it's interesting because the narrator gives us just a little foreshadow of what's going to happen. Look with me at verse 7. It says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Why is that little bit there? Well, the narrator is prepping us for what comes next. And it's not pretty. It's disastrous. It's disastrous. You see, David not really thinking through what he's doing, it ends up costing Ahimelech and 85 other priests their lives. And David at the end of chapter 24 says, I knew, I knew that that might happen when I saw Doag there. Doag is the chief shepherd of Saul's. So there's good probability David knows him. There's a chance that Doeg knows that David is running from Saul. We don't know. Doeg is opportunistic. And so he is, happens to be at the right place at the right time. Or for David, the very wrong place at the wrong time. So David, he gets outfitted with bread and a sword. He asks the priest for a sword. And all, there, all that there is is Goliath's sword. And then from there he rose and he fled that day from Saul. And he went to Issachar. He went to Zebulun. He went to a tribe in Israel. He went to Akesh the king of Gath. What? These are the guys he just beat in battle, killing their giant, Goliath, who's from Gath. And then David comes strolling into town with Goliath's sword on his back. What was he thinking? He's not. He's not thinking. He's desperate. He's desperate, but what? He's relying on his own strength. He's not relying on the Lord. He's not inquiring of the Lord. He's not asking the Lord, where should I go now? He can't ask the priest because he's lied to the priest. He can't ask Ahimelech, inquire of the Lord, what should I do next? Because he's misled the priest. And so he goes to Gath. And the servants of Akesh they recognize him. And what do they recognize him as? Look at verse 11. Is not this David the king of the land? Is David king? Well, he's anointed, but he's not, he's not the ruling king. But they recognize him as such. Why? Because he's led He's led the army in battle, right? He is the de facto king, even if he's not king de jure. And they remember the song that they sung in Israel that led to all of this downfall of David. They remember Saul has killed his thousands, but David his 10,000. And remember how that inflamed the heart of Saul, And how he was driven by envy and jealousy to go and kill David. They know that song. And as soon as David realizes that, it says in verse 12, he took these words to heart and was much afraid, right? Because they know who this is, what he represents, and what he's done. Imagine, this could have gone so many different ways. He could have strolled into town and they could have said, Where's this guy's army? This is our chance to cut off the head. Let's get him. But God, even in the midst of David's mistakes, even when he makes a desperate decision that is not a good one, not wise, God is still protecting him. He's still watching over him. And so, David, and we don't want to ever pit God's sovereignty against our responsibility. God is sovereign over the air of the men, but we are responsible for every action that we take in this life. God is sovereign. He has worked in the life of David. He has intervened in this situation so that his enemies are stilled. We read the psalm, Psalm 56, that David penned during this time, pleading with the Lord to deliver him from his enemies, and the Lord answered and responded and saved him. But he saved him how? By David quickly thinking and changing his behavior. See, David takes responsibility. He knows that he's made a mistake and so he changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So David escapes. But not without some humiliation. David because of this mistake, has to lower himself to, to acting like an insane man. And he must have been pretty persuasive if they say, we don't need another one of these. We got plenty of Philistines like this. Get this guy out of here. And so, he leaves. And we see that God, though God protected him, God guarded him, God also gifted him with the ability To think quickly, make a good decision, even after he's got himself into this position, and respond accordingly. Because God's working all things together for his good. God is providing for him. He provides a way of escape. But not just a way of escape, God also provides a community. Look with me at verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So the cave of Ajulam is probably either in disputed territory between Gath and Judah, or it's within Judah and it's wilderness, it's uninhabited. It's probably a cave complex because, as we'll soon see, it's large enough to host 400 men. And that, is go- that number is going to swell to 600 by chapter thirteen or 23. And so, David is in this kind of no man's land, but he's close enough to Judah that word gets back to Bethlehem that David is in the wilderness. And his brothers and his father and mother, they come to him to encourage him, to comfort him. Right? We're reminded of the author of Hebrews that Christ suffered outside the camp. Let's go to him out there. David is... He is um, soon becomes attractive to those who are disaffected. In verse 2, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. Huh. The elite of society, all of the cream of the crop, the richest, they all came to him. No, that's not what David gets to work with. He gets those who are in distress. You know, and this is, How do you get into distress? Well, sometimes it's your fault and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you make foolish decisions and you get yourself into a jam. Other times, you're just sinned against and you get yourself into distress or debt. Sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's not. These people are dissatisfied with the rule of Saul. Remember what Samuel told the people of God when they called the king. If you call a king, he's going to take money from you. He's going to take your best land. He's going to take your best sons for war. He's going to take your daughters to serve him. He's going to take the best of your vineyards. Now they're disaffected, right? They don't like the decision they made. At the time, they wanted a king like the nations. But now that the payment comes due, the cost is too high. Many are beginning to depart. They're seeing that Saul's leadership is suspect. I don't think we can trust this guy. This guy's a tyrant. He should be protecting us. But yet he's just persecuting this one guy, David, who's an Israelite and our hero. And so these 400 men begin to come and dwell with David. They find in him a leader that they can follow, a commander worthy of their loyalty. And so they submit himself to him. And David learns the mantle of leadership under with this group. I don't know if you've been around somebody who's bitter. It's like fog that follows them around. Right? Bitterness is you eating rat poison and hoping the other person dies. And it kind of spreads around. And this is what David has to work with. These are the people that David is called to lead. You see, God is forming a new Israel around the new king. But they're nothing special. They're not spectacular. They're not the greatest. They're ordinary, or if less than that. They're the people who have been outcasts. And we're reminded of our Lord Jesus who himself... The greater David gathered to himself a new Israel, 12 ordinary men from Galilee, the land of the Gentiles. They're not sophisticated. They're not scribes. They're not Pharisees. They're not of the 70 chief priests. They're just ordinary guys. One of them's a zealot, one of them's a tax collector. And he gathers these people, prostitutes, sinners, and he says, with you, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. You see, sometimes we look around and we have we have so little faith. We think, what are we we worship in a warehouse. But don't despise the day of small things. You see, Zechariah said that. Don't despise, despise the day of small things because the people of God saw the second temple that was built and they didn't like it. It wasn't as good as the one that Solomon had built and they lamented that. They wanted grand something grand. They wanted the pomp and the show of Solomon. But God said, I'm going to work with that. Something that's not distinguished. God does not need significant people to bring about Significance. He needs ordinary, small people who have one key ingredient, faith. They trust. God is the one who is at work bringing about his purposes. Mark chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Do you believe that God could transform this valley through Hope Church? Do you believe that God could transform this valley because of Hope Church? Jesus is showing his disciples that by faith, things that seem impossible are possible. The early church did not grow to the point where they said, these men are turning the world upside down because they were great. They didn't do it because they passed great legislation. They didn't do it because they got a president who was a Christian. They didn't do it because they had a governor or anybody who was important. They did it because one person went to his neighbor and said, have you heard about Jesus? He forgave my sins and reconciled me to God. And then they went to the next neighbor and they said the same thing. And they cared for the sick and the poor and they gave of themselves. But it wasn't great. There was nothing grand about it. But God used it to turn the world upside down so that you sit here 2,000 years later recipients of their work. But do you do the same? Do you tell that message to your neighbors? God used twelve ordinary men to turn the world upside down. He can use us. He could use us to transform this whole valley. We got a, we got people represented in every portion of this valley, mountaintop, all the way down to Wilkesbury, Clark Summit. Everywhere we're spread all we're spread so wide. Just imagine the harvest that God would bring if we reached out to our neighbors and gave them the good news that so inflames our hearts with joy. But secondly, David, although he doesn't have the cream of the crop to work with, his first act as leader is to protect his people. He sends them away to Moab. I remember, that is descended from Moab. He's the great-grandson of Ruth. Right? She was a Moabite. Probably the family kept up their connections. And so he takes his mother and father to the king of Moab and says, please care for them until I know what God will do with me. Now we see a turn. Now David is recognizing it's not me. It's not by my strength. It's not my purposes. I need to find out what God wants with me. What God is going to do. And so God provides prophetic guidance. As we've seen through these little vignettes of David, he makes some mistakes because of desperation. It's understandable, right? We don't all operate the best 100% when we're under a lot of pressure. But the problem has been that he's relying upon himself. And But still, even when David is relying on himself, God provides. God is providing giving him bread from heaven and a way of escape when close up with the enemy, furnishing him with a community to lead a new Israel forming around him. But what really sets David apart from Saul is that his ability to learn from his mistakes and turn from them back to God. Saul he made mistakes, but he never seemed to learn. He seemed doomed to fulfill the proverb like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Proverbs 26, 11. But David learns by listening to the word of God through the prophet Gad. And this is what Saul failed to do. He failed to listen to Samuel. Samuel warned him. Listen, heed the voice of God and be obedient. And he did not. Over and over and over again. But David listened. Do you see that in verse 5? Did you see how he listened? Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David thought about it. He asked some of his best advisors. And they all got together in a committee. They formed a committee. After they deliberated a little bit, he decided the word of the prophet wasn't that good. So they ended up going somewhere else. No, he did exactly what the voice of God told him to. He departed and went into the forest of Harath, which is in Judah. David listens to the voice of God. Have you ever seen those um, police dog competition shows? You know, they they get uh, an officer and his police dog and they go through an obstacle course. It's amazing to watch these animals. They, you know, sometimes they'll be right in between the officer's legs and they'll be looking right up at the officer. They're just looking up at him and they're waiting and they'll move. The officer will move and they'll move and they'll look and and they're just constantly have their eye on the officer and they're listening for any command. And it's just, they move as one unit. They're in sync completely. That's how the king is supposed to be with God. He's supposed to have his ear attuned, listening to God. What is it? Where am I going? Okay, this, this way? No. Okay. Not relying on his own strength. He's got his ear attuned to God. He's listening and he's putting into practice by obeying. That's not what Saul did, but that's what the king should do. The king is to rule under authority. This is what the problem with all leadership is. All leadership is under authority. There is no one higher than God. God is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of man, just as man is the head of his wife. There is a structure, an order to the authority. And men, when they refuse to recognize that Christ is their head, refuse to submit to him as their Lord, they make havoc of their authority, their responsibility, of the nation, of our country. Did you notice that from the beginning of chapter 21, what was strangely absent? Why wasn't David inquiring of the Lord all along? Why didn't he stop? Why didn't he come to Himalak and say, Ahimelech, I don't know if I should be telling you this, but Saul wants me dead, and I try to be faithful. Like he could have said the same thing he said to Jonathan. I try. I, if if there's sin in me, if there's something worthy of death, me, he said that same thing. Like, what do I do? Please inquire of the Lord for me, and then God would have directed his steps. But David's bumbling. He's desperate. He doesn't know what to do, but he learns. He learns to rely upon the Lord. And this is going to be emphasized over and over again that David won't even make a move without inquiring of the Lord. We're going to find this in chapter 23 when he has to go down and save the city of Kaliah. Do I go down? Are you sure? Are you sure? Over and over he inquires of the Lord. David learns the lesson. and that. But unfortunately... Some of these choices have disastrous consequences. The fact that Doeg was there and he sees David with Ahimelech leads to the decimation of the city of Nob and all of the priests. David learns. He learns from those mistakes and he learns because God is taking him through the wilderness and he's shaping and molding him. He's learning that. God is gracious and compassionate, that He's slow to anger, that He's abounding in steadfast love. He's not not looking for perfect people because there are none. What He looks for is attentive people, people who have their ears tuned to listen to Him, people who look to Him in faith to act, people who commit their plans to the Lord, people who listen and respond in obedience. We have seen David grow, but how about you? Are you learning from the past? Can you trace the outline of God's providence in your life? The ways that he has provided for you. Can you remember situations that were desperate for you? Where you made bad decisions. And you're dealing still with the consequences. Can you see God's hand even there? Can you see God directing and molding and shaping you to be the kind of person who listens and obeys? David recounts in the Psalms all the many ways that God has provided. Psalm 34 has this inscription of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That's one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 34 And towards the end of that psalm, he says this, sort of summarizes all that he's learned. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David could say that God provided because he experienced it. Not just once, but over and over in various situations throughout his life. But no matter the situation, he could confidently say, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers out of them all. Can you say that? I hope that your memory is flashing back to all the ways that God has been an ever-present help in time of need. How God has provided for you. And the crown of God's provision is His Son, Jesus. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Those who eat from Him will never hunger. He's the true deliverance from enemies. Namely, sin and death by His own death and resurrection. He's the true community. He brings us into fellowship with the Father by His Spirit. And He's true prophetic guidance as He, by His Spirit, continues to direct our steps through this wilderness sojourn that is our life. Amen? Do you trust in that Jesus? Do you believe that He is the bread from heaven, the true community, escape from the enemy? Guidance the times, if you believe that, you can have decisions. Then, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We're thankful that in the midst of desperate times, you do provide. We're thankful for your Son Jesus, who you have given to us, whose person and work has meant our freedom from sin and our deliverance from every desperate situation we've ever encountered or ever will. And we know that you are working all things together for our good, and so we trust you. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Guard us from doubt when we encounter difficult and trying situations. And build up our faith so that as we sojourn, we may learn the lessons that you have taught us. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen.